the best copywriting advice is always, always, always write it how you say it out loud. So if you read it out loud and it doesn't sound like something that you would actually say, just go back. And that is going to turn out probably way more casual than what you first wrote. The end result is like, you're going to be like, can I really send that? That would work so well. In this episode, I talked to my friend, Laura Roder. Laura and I have been friends for a long time, maybe nine, 10 years, even longer. And uh, I've just, I've learned so much from her over the years that it's great to have her on the podcast. So Laura started an online community, you know, in a, in a course called Creating Fame. Um, she's done a bunch of stuff a long time ago in the internet space. She's one of the people who's uh, been doing it for, you know, since the early days. Uh, and then she got into software with a company called Meet Edgar, which was social media scheduling. She grew that to be quite a successful company uh, and then sold it. We talked about that a bit in the episode. And now she's working on another software company called Paperbell, which is uh, software for coaches to manage their business. So there's just so much that you can learn from Laura. I love her direct, uh, blunt style that she's always had. She's given me so much advice over the years. Uh, and you just get to tune in and basically as we jump on a call, hit record immediately and just start catching up. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. And uh, one quick thing, if you wouldn't mind leaving reviews uh, and subscribing to the podcast, if you're watching on YouTube or wherever else, like subscribe on YouTube. And then, uh, you know, if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, like go subscribe on those channels. Uh, we're definitely trying to grow the audience of the show. Uh, and then, you know, leave a comment or, or <laughs> I can't even talk, leave a comment or a review and uh, I'd appreciate it. All right, let's dive in. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. I had to invite myself to your show, but you said yes. So it's sort of like you invited me. <laughs> I said yes immediately. I mean, very quickly, very quickly. So, I think yeah. it was a hell yes, too. I don't remember. <laughs> okay, good. Know, at least good. It, it was for me, you know, whether oh, I put good. that in, in words <laughs> in our text or Twitter DMs. Uh. <laughs> I don't know. We have not talked in other than the occasional text message in years. I know. Yeah. There's like, I moved to a different country and then there's pandemic. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, I'm just, there's so many things. I was actually writing a story about, I'm trying to think where I put it. Uh, oh, in my uh, like private newsletter um, about you and I at dinner in Denver years ago. Okay. We, yeah, exactly. You're like, okay, this is where is this going? Yeah. <laughs> um, I just oh, remember, I know so, where it's going. I know the story you're going to tell. <laughs> so we're at this like super fancy conference. Uh, I think it was, was it at the Four Seasons or some some nice hotel and all that. And they'd plan this great dinner at, mm. I don't know, some like fusion restaurant. And yeah, it was really good. It was just, I had a couple issues. One, they had like 37 courses for the food. And every and course, like 60 people who needed to eat all this food. <laughs> yeah. And it was so loud. Mm-hmm. And I don't function well in loud environments. I'm just like, I don't know. So I wanted to leave. We were enjoying it, but I wanted to leave because you couldn't really have a great conversation, all that. But I also really wanted dessert. And so at one point you're like, hey, let's go. Like, and I was like, well, no, you know, and they had the place cards with the, the menu, you know, and I could see that like, there was another course and then dessert, something like that. And I was like, no, I just want to stay for that. <laughs> and the way I remember it is you uh, like lean forward because it was loud enough that like it was hard to hear. And you're like, Nathan, you're a millionaire. 
buy your own fucking dessert. <laughs> and it was a good point. You can afford to buy dessert. You don't have to get the free dessert here. And we did go get, I think we got ice cream. Yeah. And then we went and got ice cream. We probably spent, you know, $10 on it for yeah. <laughs> total, you know, and uh, it was a great time. But um, anyway, the reason that I like that story, the reason I tell that story uh, is one, you know, help me shape mindset around money. Cause there's a lot mm. of things in that where, you know, you realize you're holding on to things that you don't need to. Um, but then it's also like the perfect story of uh, like the relationship that you and I have had over the last, I don't know what, nine years or something where you're just like straight to the point with candid feedback and where you're just like, why are you doing this? Yeah. (laughs) You know? So anyway, it's good to have you on the podcast and and catch up and hang out because, um, yeah, I just want to hear what's been going on. And, you know, if you have other things where, you know, where you're like, why are you doing this? And cut to the point with very direct (laughs) feedback. I'm here for it. You know, I think I want to add to that story too, because I think there's another kind of lesson in that story, which is also, just a kind of like life is short. And sometimes we feel these obligations that no one else actually cares about, you know, because I remember we were talking about it and we're like, you know, we don't want to be rude. Like, obviously, the people who organized this conference put a lot of time and money into putting this dinner together. But yeah, it was this massive dinner. We weren't, you know, coming up to the organizers saying like, this dinner, this dinner is terrible. Like, we just left kind of early. I'm sure they did not care at all. And if they did care, I would say like, guys, you're a little too invested in, in how long people are, are staying at the dinner. You know what I mean? But so I think sometimes we find ourselves doing these things because we feel some sort of obligation or we feel like we have to, or we feel like, you know, we're not allowed to. And I think it's just a lesson in questioning, kind of checking in with yourself. Actually, did I make a commitment to someone to stay for this entire dinner? Like, no, I, I did not. You know, it's I, I can go. It's fine. Yeah. Well, it just makes me think I used to do a ton of things in life out of obligation, mm. you know, whether it was, um, if someone invited me to something, especially a family member, you know, mm. any of that, like I would just always go, even if I didn't necessarily want to. And yeah. so maybe around that time, I'm trying to think what it was or yeah, probably I, I made this shift. I had a couple other family members who I could tell didn't do anything out of obligation. And sometimes it was annoying, but yeah, they like they set a good model like you knew that if they were somewhere it's because they wanted to be there and like Mm -hmm. that they showed up differently because of that and it actually you know when they when they were uh at an event or spending time with you like it felt different because you knew they wanted to be there and if they didn't want to be there they'd be like hey i'm gonna go do something else now and i'd leave and so it, it was a whole shift for me probably about that time of realizing how much i did out of obligation and then uh how that like would come across for other people. Yeah. There's, there's a great phrase that I learned from, um, there's this woman called Mama Gina. She teaches Mama Gina School of Womanly Arts. So if you're listening right. and you're interested, you can just Google that and get into <laughs> her whole world. I can't even start to explain what it is. Um, but some lingo from that community is you'll ask someone, is it in your pleasure to do something? Um, and then someone will say, it is in my pleasure. And if if you're talking to someone from that community, you know that that means that they truly do want to. So it's great, especially if you're asking for a favor or something like that. Like you would say, would it be in your pleasure to pick me up from the airport? And they're like, yeah, it, it would be in my pleasure or no, it would not be in my pleasure. Uh, you know, like that, that's going to be a huge hassle to me. It doesn't sound right. fun. I'd rather just see you when you're there. And it's just a great way 
to have this very straightforward communication mm-hmm. that you genuinely know that both parties are happy. You know, you don't have to think, oh, what if they, you know, what if they just said yes because they feel bad, but actually they're going to have to find a babysitter and, you know, just right. to go pick me up from the airport. You don't have to have that whole conversation of figuring out what they, what they really want. It's like, is it, is it in your pleasure? There's another uh, version of this that I ran into last night where um, I bought the house that I grew up in from my dad because mm. he's retiring. He didn't want to, you know, have that big of a house. It's up in the mountains. And, and so it like has a lot of nostalgia for me, but um, we're remodeling it and we're going to use it as a vacation home part of the time, but mostly like rent it out on uh, Airbnb and that kind of thing. So mm. in the whole process of doing it, I hired a designer for where um, I'm talking to like a house stager designer to, to do the whole layout for it and or, or not the layout, all the furniture and decor and mm. everything. And we were just going back and forth and it wasn't quite working. Like the prices were much higher than I expected. Mm. And, and I couldn't tell if they really wanted to do this project because they kept trying mm. to find some way to make it work or yeah. if they really wanted to work with us or, or what it was. And so finally I just called them and said like, because I didn't want to be a burden on them. I didn't want right. to, you know, really push for something that didn't work. So I finally just asked. And it was, you know, my question, it was much longer than like, would it be in your pleasure? But it, right. it, was, it was that question of like, yeah, do you, do you want to find a way to make this work? And they're like, oh yeah, we, two things. We really like working with you. We did it on another project. And we really want to do this project in particular. And it was just interesting being able to ask so directly and mm-hmm. then to get such an honest answer back. And then I was totally confident they weren't doing it just because uh, they, you know, needed the money or they like didn't want to let us down or something. It's like, no, 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 we really want to do this. Let's find a way to make it work. And I was like, oh, great. And so I just love that candid communication where you're like honest with yourself and honest mm-hmm. with the other person. Well, I now know that this is also a very American trait because I live in the UK, which is <laughs> famous for indirect conversation uh and it is a cultural thing i've had to learn here specific it sounds funny but the the tea thing is real um for british people really do drink a lot of tea and if someone comes to your yep. house you have to offer them a cup of tea and i learned that you do not just offer them a cup of tea once you're like do you want a cup of tea and they're like no and then you're like are you sure and they're like no and then you have to say well i'm having a cup of tea so would you want one and then they'll say go on so you have, to, you have to ask several times, which for me, honestly, is a little bit frustrating because I, yeah. you know, as we've established, do prefer a much more direct style of communication. And also you're then expected to drink the tea, you know, even right. if you didn't want tea, because then you had to pretend that you were making some for you and then you can't just like <laughs> not have some for you. And then you do have to make some for you and then you just sit there and drink it. So it, it's okay. I've, I've adapted. It's not that big a deal to, to have to ask a few times. Yeah, you can manage it. Is I there some manage. way that we tie this into business? We don't have to, but I'm just thinking about it. <laughs> no, I think the way I think the way that it ties into business is, I mean, I get you know, I guess your your personal preferences may vary, right? But right. I think giving people permission to create this culture of more direct communication, you know, with their team, with their clients, with the people that they work with. Um, and talking about it, right? Like it's really useful to actually explicitly talk about it, whether you, you know, resonate with the phrase, is it in your pleasure? That's totally a phrase that you you can use at work, you know, or maybe you want to have another way that you're going to say it, but yeah, so that you can communicate with people without all this dancing around the topic and just like knowing that that's totally okay. And I think a lot of people prefer to communicate that way. Yeah. And I think setting an expectation 
beforehand. Like if, if you were to start working with someone, mm-hmm. um, I, I've seen people write like these, um, like the handbook for working with Nathan, you know, mm-hmm. like this is just, this is the way that I think this is what I prefer. You know, like when I show up at work at my best, this is what I'm like when I'm at my worst, it usually shows up like this, you know, that type of thing. And that's like the most formal version of it. If you wrote it all out. Um, but an informal version would be like, Hey, I really value direct communication. And so like, I'm going to tell you if I want something or don't want something and like, right. you can just trust me and take me at my word. And that's really helpful. Yeah. And you know, this is something I was working on this morning for my company. So um, Paperbell is my business now. So it's a SaaS company for coaches, like life coaches to manage their billing and their scheduling and contracts and client information and stuff in one tool. And I'm building the company in a very different way than I built Meet Edgar, my last company, because Meet Edgar, um, we were all about having a full-time team. Everyone was W2. And with Paperbell, I'm building it with like subject matter expert freelancers. Like you have a specific mm-hmm. job, you have a specific project, you go in and do it. It's a very different environment because there's not, you know, we have a Slack. There's like basically no chit chat that happens on the Slack, you know, there's no like, there is no career building opportunities, you know, it's like the only opportunity is kind of, you know, do your work and get the experience that way. And you can get better at your craft by doing this project. So as we, you know, grow over time, it comes up more and more often, like meeting new freelancers for different projects. So I was working on kind of um, codifying what what is the culture here? And I think a big thing for me has been giving myself the permission that it is okay to have this culture, you know, that you that you don't have, for example, like customer service, we just need a few hours a day, I don't see opportunities for them to get to lead a big customer service team. But -hmm. also there's a lot of people that don't want to be a manager, that want to be an individual contributor, get it done, don't have to go to meetings, you know, can just like go in and do your work. So I think for me, it's been a big thing just to give myself permission to, to say like, yes, this is how we do things here you're going to love it if you're like this, you're not going to love it if you're like that. Um, And especially I think a lot of very small businesses like listening to this podcast, we do need to do things in this more creative way. And I think sometimes we can sometimes feel guilty about it. Like, oh, no one's, you know, no one's going to work with me because they're not going to be able to have this, this big team to collaborate with. But as a you know one person business working with a few freelancers, you have a lot of great unique things to offer too. Yeah, one thing that stands out in that is saying, I think most people say, you're going to love it if you're this type of person. And if you're this type of person, you're going to love it as well. I'm not really <laughs> sure why, but, you, yeah. but it'll be great. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's going to love it. Mm. And what you're doing very deliberately is saying, this type of person is going to love it. And this type of person is actually probably going to hate it and yeah. should avoid us entirely, you know, not as a customer, right? right? But as a team member, right? That's not something that you're going to... Uh, enjoy if you're the type of person who's getting a lot of your community from work or, mm. you know, really looking for managing people, career growth in that way. Like it's not for you. And yeah. I think in, well, in audience building in business across the board, and then certainly in team building, the more you lean into the things of saying like very clearly, there's two sides of this coin. These people are going to love it. And these people are not, um, I'm specifically 
making an audience for designers and developers are not like, mm. you know, I'm not catering to them at all, right. you know, or, or whatever thing and, and being clear about who you're, you're excluding makes who you're for a lot stronger. Yeah. But it's always really scary to do. <laughs> it's really scary to do, especially when you're smaller. I mean, this again, is something we're doing at Paperbell where we've been doing some customer research lately and we figured out that, um, life coaches in particular, and I mean, life coaches can call themselves lots of different things, but basically right. if you're a coach that sort of helps with that more personal side, um, that really is the home run for our product. And also we've recently realized that we are really a product for your one-on-one -on -one services. You know, right now we have some kind of very basic like content delivery, course delivery stuff. Um, but the direction we really want to go is servicing one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and that at first felt a little scary because one-on-one -on -one is way less glamorous. Like if you are you know, looking at media on like how to grow your coaching business. A lot of it is going to be about doing courses. A lot of it is going to be group coaching, like scale your business and all that stuff is great, but it's not what everyone wants to do. Like I think at the end of the day, in most situations, people are going to get the greatest transformation from one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. work. Like one-on-one -on -one work is, is really important as a coach, I think, if, if that's something that you are excited to do. And most coaches' businesses are going to be majority one-on-one, -on -one, even though you don't hear as much hype yeah. and excitement about that. So it's a change actually that isn't on our website yet, but is going to change on our site and our positioning like, and has given me a really clear goal. Actually, I have a little note here that says the world's best platform for one-to-one -one coaching and gives me a very clear goal for our roadmap for what we want to build in the product and not want to build and i know that it makes it so much easier for a potential customer to look at us and say yes but it's it's scary to do especially you know online courses it's not they're obviously a huge trend gonna keep getting bigger so to say like right. no that's not the bandwagon that we're on is is like a little bit scary yeah those decisions where you could be wrong and they have mm -hmm. implications um, which m makes me think of the inverse because there, there are decisions where you can't really be wrong. Uh, like it's in a falsifiable way, right? You can't mm -hmm. prove that, that this is wrong. So for example, if we target everyone, you can't really prove that that was the wrong decision. Right. Because the byproduct of that, if it goes poorly, is going to be that the company doesn't grow. Mm -hmm. But I could blame the company not growing on a hundred different things. Yeah. Yeah. But if, for example, I target one-on-one -on -one coaching specifically and the company doesn't grow, I'm likely to blame that decision for, um, you know, for the lack of growth. And so it's interesting looking at the decisions that you're making that like actually feel really scary because you're like, I could be wrong in this. And those are probably the best decisions to make because they're the ones that are actually narrowing in your focus and actually having you uh, they're probably driving growth and it's the, you know, it's the non-decision of like, oh, we're going to target everyone. Mm. We're going to build all of these features. We're not going to come into the market with a particular opinion because mm. we could be wrong. Yeah. But it's, but then, you know, you said you don't really know either way. Yeah. So, so what's the, is there, is there a moral to the story? What are you supposed to do if, you don't choose and then it doesn't grow and then you don't know why. And then you do choose and it doesn't grow and you don't know why. Well, I think, I, I think if you do choose, you, uh, you learn a lot more. I think a lot of the broad 
the broad decisions, right? We're going to go after everyone. We're going to all of that. The, the decisions that open things up mm. um, tend to give you a lot less information because mm. you can blame a lot of different things. Whereas you made a decision that narrows something down and we can, we can know in a period of time, is this useful or is that, was this um, the right decision? We might get feedback that's more clear. Yeah. You'll start to find out, like you'll get feedback on that specific thing. Whereas mm. if you make a broad open decision, it, you're not going to get feedback that ties to that specific thing. Um, anyway, all this, I'm a huge fan of like narrowing in and focusing with, as you know, we did that with ConvertKit um, because your, your feedback is very precise. So let's, let's talk about ConvertKit because you guys are at an interesting point where obviously now you are adding on a lot of features, right? right. You have payments now, landing pages, right? I see you're building a lot of yep. things. So how did you come to that decision? Was it like, okay, we have kind of enough of the captured enough of the market, then now it's time to go off in different directions. What, what does that look like for you? I think it, well, it's something we talk about a lot mm -hmm. of how much have you scaled your current thing before you add in the, the next thing, right? Because when you get to a certain number of, of customers, we're probably at 25 million a year in revenue when we started working on payments, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's on one hand, it's like, look at all of these customers. Say at that time it was 33, 35,000 paying customers. Then you're like, wow, if I get all of them to do payments, then this is a huge line of business as well. So that's the like, here's why you should do it. And then mm -hmm. why you shouldn't do it is the like, have you scaled the core, right? Email, email or landing pages. Have you scaled that as far as it could go? Should that get to a hundred million a year in revenue and yeah. a hundred thousand customers first? And it's a tough trade-off. Um, and I think one of the biggest mistakes that founders make when they have some level of success is they add the other channels sooner. I refer to it as like building a skyscraper versus building a strip mall. You know, and you got your radio shack and your subway and your, you know, uh, all these other things that you add next to it. I don't think I have a, a clear way of knowing which is right. Yeah, it's just seeing the opportunity, like the opportunity cost in each one. And I think I decided with adding ConvertKit Commerce that the opportunity cost for the core platform wasn't that high. And, mm -hmm. the, and our market was big enough. Um, though at this point, we only have like 4% of our paying customers receiving payouts from commerce right now. And so it's, it's still relatively small. So there, there's a lot of opportunity to grow and, it, and it's grown more slowly than I expected. So, so is, does that mean that maybe you did it too early? Potentially. Maybe it was the wrong call. You never know. This is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then you can stop working. You'll never know. So stop working. <laughs> right. Yeah. I wonder if we, if we did it too early um, or pro I think also the feature set required to compete in that space um, mm. is pretty substantial. Yeah. Right. And that, and that's the thing, especially if you go broad, right? This is an advantage to what you've done with Paperbell of going narrow because now you don't have to have a course platform that competes with right. Teachable, Podia, Thinkific, right. et cetera. Yeah. And you don't have to have, you know, whatever else. Um, so anyway, narrowing down, especially early is, is a really good thing. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we saw the writing on the wall is like, if we keep going broad, where we end up is, is Kajabi. Um, right. that's kind of the more similar, like, you know, the Podia and Teachable are like just courses. Kajabi is courses and email marketing and like, yeah. God knows what, like just literally website every, building. <laughs> a website building. Yeah. Just literally everything. Um, and I'm like, I do not want to build like, personally, I just don't love 
that kind of all-in-one software. Yeah. Just, it's just like, it's not what I, it's not the company I want to have. It's, it's not what I want to build. But if we keep, and I think, you know, this is why it is so important to figure out where you're going sort of long-term, you know, a year or three years or whatever, because you might just start sort of adding on here and there. Things are, oh, people are asking for more courses. People want to, you know, be able to share videos, whatever. And then you realize, well, now I have this in-betweeny product that it's like, you would never, we're not Kajabi. So it's like, why are you going to, why are you going to choose us over Kajabi where we could have stayed really focused on your, again, your one-on-one services, your one-on-one coaching, then we can build something that really is the best. Yeah. And yeah. Being the best for a narrow market. And then you can choose how to expand from there. Right. right. So it's probably about feature set. It's, it's customer traction, the, how established your feature set is in your core market. Um, before before expanding. Um, there's a ton of things that I want to ask you about Paperbell. Yeah. Let, I actually want to go back to Edgar for, for a second. Mm-hmm. Are you when did you change from calling it me from Edgar to meet Edgar? Because it was originally Edgar, right? Yes. Um, I think very few people would know that. It wasn't what happened was it was originally Edgar. Our domain name was meetedgar.com. Yep. Edgar.com is actually some sort of like securities. Thing. There's something okay. called Edgar in all caps. So we're never going to get that. Um, yep. So we made the domain meetedgar.com, but then everyone was calling it Meet Edgar. And we're like, it's actually kind of a better name as far as like easy to Google because Edgar right. is a little, it's always Edgar Allan Poe. If you just Google Edgar, <laughs> if you Google Meet Edgar and the securities thing, if you Google Meet Edgar, um, you know, you're always going to get us. So we actually did switch like the brand and the logo and the stuff to be Meet Edgar. Yeah, and you've always been good with with branding, and like me, Edgar had the world's cutest octopus. Cutest um, octopus. People love that octopus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so since we last talked, you've sold me, Edgar. Oh, look at that—an <laughs> <laughs> octopus cameo. <laughs> um, what what brought you to selling me, Edgar, and how'd that process go? Yeah. Um, well, so first, I have to mention that I wrote a really detailed blog post about like the actual selling process. Um, it's on my name, lauraroder.com. So if you're interested in selling a business, especially a software business, but I think useful yeah. for anyone, um, go read that blog post. Uh, but you know, the decision to sell the business was definitely a long journey. So the business was seven years old when I sold it. We launched in 2014 and we sold at the end of 2021. Um, so, you know, for a software company, that's kind of a while. Yeah. And I had taken myself gradually more and more out of the business over those years. So for a while, I was CEO, but I had a head of operations kind of running the day to day. And then actually, when I moved uh, to the UK, I, I was living in the US and all our team was always remote, but all in the US. And when I moved from the US to the UK, which was about four years ago now, it created a huge distance in a way that I wasn't totally anticipating because we had been remote, but we always worked in this kind of real-time remote way where we would have right. a lot of meetings. You know, we had a lot of over, we're all in America, a lot of overlapping work hours. And what I didn't anticipate is like moving to the UK, uh, American work hours are basically evening hours, totally yep. evening hours for West Coast. The problem is I have little kids. So like, Maybe if you don't have kids, you're like, sure, I'll just start my work day at 5 p.m. But like if you have kids, like that's after school time, dinner time, bath time, bedtime, like the prime U.S. working hours are your prime 
kid out. It just doesn't, yeah. it just doesn't work out. Um, so at that point I, I was sort of not forced to, I'd been on the path already, but that was kind of a forcing function and saying like, okay, I'm going to move the head of operations to a president role and I'm really going to be out of the business. So it was like a long journey from, you know, obviously being super involved in the business when we launched to being out of it more and more to deciding to sell it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many factors that go into selling. I don't even know kind of where to start. Yeah. Well, I think staying on the, the business operation side for a moment, you and I have always had a little bit of a different style in business um, mm. where you're better at systems and like, and you'll create that space. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm the person who's like all the way in it. And then I'll like get a little bit of distance from, okay, I hired these people. And then if someone yeah. leaves, I'm like, I don't just perfectly replace the person. I mm -hmm. like dive right back into the business and yeah. the role. I'm actually doing it right now. Now that I think about it, of <laughs> our VP of growth left and I'm like filling that role mm -hmm. and having a great time doing it. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, the, the advice is that if you want to be able to sell your business, like it has to operate and function without you. Um, and then also if you want to be a, a good leader, right, you can't be mm -hmm. in the weeds of everything. Um, and so I, I think that's something that you've, you've always done well is having those systems to, to operate at scale. So anyway, yeah. I just want to call that out. Yeah. And also a big part of my story is I went on maternity leave six months after launch and I was actually away for like two months. So again, just a great forcing function. Um, I knew I wanted to be able to take a real leave. So I had to set the business up in a way where it didn't all just fall apart when I was gone. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, okay. So you decided to sell mm -hmm. and, and people can read the, read the post because it is very detailed and has all kinds of great advice on it. Um, did you end up like after the sale, did you end up having to be in, involved, um, in any way or it was just a clean break? It was, it was a clean break. I mean, I do um, have a contract with them. It's actually like just now finishing where they could ask me questions for six months mm -hmm. after the sale, but I haven't heard from them in a few months. Um, but yeah, the business, like you said, like having things systematized was definitely always a strength of mine. Um, the business is just really simple as far as business model goes, you know, we were 100% self-serve. So we didn't have any clients on a special plan. We didn't have any right. customer success where we were like servicing people, no custom features, no one mailed us checks, no one had a custom payment plan. It's like all of our revenue comes in through Stripe. All of like when we, for a long time, we only had one plan. We did have two plans by the time we sold, but it's like 100% of people are on this plan or that plan. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it was a very simple business. We always used just like, you know, standard stuff as far as we weren't making like coding our own weird things using like weird programming languages no one's ever heard of, which, you know, I didn't know how important that was until I sold the business, like right. doing things in a standard way, definitely for software. But I think this applies to other businesses as well. Like just use the sort of standard best in class tools, use the standard processes. If you like got real crazy and creative and are making up all your own things, your business is very hard for other people to run. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why these like WordPress plugin businesses mm -hmm. are get sold so often and are, and are relatively easy to sell Yeah, uh, because it's just like, you can hire a WordPress developer. You can right. hire a Rails developer, right? Mm -hmm. In each of these categories, it's like, <laughs> 
don't don't get too clever because yeah. then you're gonna you're gonna uh, regret it later of making yeah. this complexity. Uh, okay, so one thing I'm wondering, well, going back to the money conversation from the beginning, mm-hmm. were there any shifts in how you uh, have shown up over the last like three to six months since selling the business where you had to operate or like you realize, oh, I can let go of that way that I was working or mm. the way that I interacted with money or um, anything else? Yeah. So I was in a very strong financial position before the sale. So yeah. I had always paid myself a few hundred thousand a year, always been like a strong saver. So I had like a pretty substantial wealth, you know, portfolio by the time I sold, but I did not have uh, a like kind of amount of money in investments that I could just live off of forever, which now I do. Right. Like now I'm at the level where, and obviously that number is different for everyone, but I feel like I have enough of investments. I don't have to work, don't have to do any sort of scrimping, you know, on the, the life I want to lead. So when I first sold the business, I took a week off and just stayed in Brighton here where I live. Because I wanted to have that experience. Like, I wanted to put my brain, you don't have to work. Um, and to be clear, yeah. by this time, I Paperbell had already started like a year ago or something. You know, I was already well into Paperbell. Um, and I was pretty clear that I did want to keep doing Paperbell, but I just wanted to make sure that I stopped and considered, like, okay, have this life for a week. You're not like on holiday, you're just living your normal life where you live, you're still picking up your kids at the normal time, right? you're just not working like you usually do during the day, have that experience. Um, And it was really good actually to have that experience, to remind myself that that really is a real choice for me. Right. And I I do sometimes, I mean, the way I work now is like very part-time, very casual. um, And it, it has made me kind of remember that I'm doing I am doing this for fun in a lot of ways, my business now. And I mean, it, it relates exactly to what we were talking about earlier, the different way that I'm building a team. I'm like, this is kind of an experiment for me in what sounds to me like the most fun way to work with people. Because like you kind of alluded to, like if there's a spectrum of like people person, systems person, I'm, you know, they're not totally mutually exclusive, but I'm like more yeah. on, the, on the systems side. Um, so it's like, yeah, okay, can I, can I build a company my way where I'm not needing to do a lot of performance reviews and check-ins and, and team meetings and stuff that honestly I never really loved? Like, can we get freelancers to, to show up and do the work? And part of the reason I've been able to give myself permission for that is like, okay, you, you have enough money. This is just a project you want to do. So make it enjoyable for yourself. Yeah, I like that. Um, there are times that I found myself explaining, you know, like to my kids or something else like, oh, I have to go to work or all of that. Mm. It's like, okay, I don't actually. Yeah. I'm choosing I'm to go to, to work. And and going back to the doing things out of obligation or all of that, like saying it, it's not an obligation at this point. And so just changing that relationship and saying like, oh, this is what I want to do. Even on the days where I'm like, why do I still do this? You know, or anything when yeah, things are going yeah. wrong. It's like, oh no, I, I deliberately choose to do this. So I like the idea of of taking a break from it. Or like living that that reality for a little bit. Yeah, I think I, I felt the money once I started investing it. So basically kind of what I'm doing with the money from the sale is more or less just putting it in various index funds. 
Um, and, you know, for various reasons, it just sat in cash for a while before I started doing that. Um, I did get to buy in like a little bit of the drop at the beginning of the year. So I was like, I know you're not supposed to time the market, but I'm like, oh, if it's a good down day, like I'm going to yeah. Um, so it, that actually, like, it, I didn't honestly have like this huge sense of accomplishment when the money hit. But once I had the big investment portfolio and I got to like make those really large buys of of the investments, that kind of felt like, oh, this is like, this is real. This is kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, let's go back to branding for a second, because. Uh, you know, we have Meet Edgar, we talked about the mm. domain there and how like the domain that you ended up with ended up changing the, the name of, yeah. of the business slightly uh, with Paperbell, which by the way, I just love because no one's ever going to misspell it. Like yeah. it has a, like a fun, positive, playful connotation. You get all these people t- t- giving advice of like names don't matter. Like just pick mm. something and I like firmly disagree. Yeah. <laughs> I, think that, yeah. I think it matters quite a bit. And so I really like Paperbell as a name. Um, I guess two questions. One, uh, how'd you come up with it? And then two, you started with paperbell.io. And so I want to get into, um, yeah. You acquired so, uh, I also wrote a blog post about this. So again, look on my blog. So my process for paperbell was actually to start with the com. Even though we did have the IO very early, I knew I could buy the com. Um, so basically what I did is like, I'm like, I want a business where I can get the .com so I don't have to have this thing happen where you have to pay a $500,000, right? For the .com down the road. So when I was brainstorming names, what I did was think of, I wanted a name. I mean, ConvertKit follows this formula. Your failed name didn't follow this formula, by the way. ConvertKit, ConvertKit is two real words. So everyone knows how to spell it. Everyone knows how to say it. But because it's two real words and not one, it is still very Googleable. Um, I think the absolute worst names, there are so many startup names now that are like, pin, cop. And I'm like, how is anyone supposed to Google that? Like I tweeted the other day, I'm like, I found another Fathom. I found like four startups that are all right. called Fathom. How are you supposed to find them? Or they'll be called like, screen i'm like you can't type in the word screen and find your like enterprise analytics tool or whatever so <laughs> the two just having two words instead of one word solves solves that you know which convertkit has so that that's sort of my formula is like put two real words together i found a bunch of words that i kind of liked the sound and feel of and then i went to premium domain sites i think my budget was like three thousand dollars i went to premium domain sites to find i think a lot of people look for domains that are just fully available, which is like, well, there's not that many that are just unregistered. Right. But if you have $500, $1,000, $5,000, like the world, the world is your oyster for some pretty good .coms. So we were always planning to buy the .com. The, I mean, again, you're really paying attention that you know there was an .io. I think that was when we did like a landing page pre-launch. Okay. We did that on .io, just being like, we're not going to spend $3,000 if the universal feedback is like, you dummies, like no one, no one wants this, you know, we'll wait to get some people come through the landing page and then we'll buy the .com. But we did buy it very, very early. How much did you have to pay for it? It was right at that, like 3000 type of number. Yeah. It's interesting. 
going to the premium domain marketplaces because there's a lot and you in mm-hmm. the say two thousand to twenty thousand dollar range, yeah, um, which is a lot of money when you're just starting, yeah. But at the same time, it's not like in the grand scheme of things, if this mm-hmm. business works, it's very little money. You know, you're going to have to you're gonna have to spend for it, and so like I went, I searched for domains that were available, you know, to register mm-hmm. at GoDaddy for seven ninety nine or whatever, yeah, yeah. right? But hearing your story and others, and this is also right, because if I started another business, I'm doing it with a budget. And so that's right. that's helpful. That helps a lot. <laughs> that helps a lot. But one example is Teachable, for example, um, used to be called Fedora. Mm-hmm. And their domain was usefedora.com. And Podia used to be called Coach, which was the worst name ever. Oh, and it was use, with Coach. Withcoach.com, I think, was their domain. Or usecoach. Coach, usecoach.me, even. Oh, that could be. Oh, I have a rule on um, company names or domain names. You're allowed one modifier. So you, if you mm. misspell the word, like that's your modifier and you have to have the .com. You know, like you added the extra vowel in there or whatever. Um, or if you have, if you add in use or with, you know, so use coach, then you have to have the .com because that mm. was your modifier. Or if you have the .me or .io, like that's your modifier and you have to have, like, you're, but you're only yeah. allowed one. And it upsets me when people are like, yeah, use coach.io or, you know, or some misspelling. Anyway, only allowed one modifier. Uh, anyway, so uh, Fedora, like they, I'm trying to think what revenue was. I, I think it was probably 50K MR or more. Because mm-hmm. uh, I remember like, you know, ConvertKit and Fedora then Teachable grew at the same time. Mm-hmm. But when they were searching for a new name for their business, they just went on the premium domain marketplaces and just scrolled and scrolled yeah. and scrolled until they found something. I think it cost 20 grand or so. And so, yeah. you know, but Teachable is like a really great name. An excellent name. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's not as expensive as people think. So yeah, like I said, I spent 3000 which is a lot, but a lot less than 20000 you know? Right. And there are some names even for like 500 to to 1000 maybe not as good quote unquote but like you can get a especially um like a podia type name where it's something sort of similar to a real word you can definitely get those for that thousand and under type of budget just because they're so random it's like someone you know may may or may not want it so yeah i think it's it's a path that a lot of people it just never occurs they just think they can't afford a premium domain they think they're all hundreds of thousands and that's that's absolutely not the case well, I think another thing that you have going for you with Paperbell is domains are often priced based on length, right? So Podia.com mm-hmm. is going to be a fairly expensive mm-hmm. domain um, because it's only five characters, uh, whereas yeah. Paperbell is one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven, <laughs> you know, it's longer. Yeah, ten. yeah. Um, and so what you're going to end up with there is it's priced as though it's less valuable, mm-hmm. but you ended up, you have very simple letters. This is yeah. something I would do differently with ConvertKit is I would not put two consonants, like two hard consonants together. Mm. We're into like the nerdiness of, of naming, <laughs> right? Uh, we're, like technically with Paperbell, you have two consonants together, but uh-huh. neither are hard. Like it's not a hard transition when you say it. Um, and they're all like very simple uh, letters. You know, you you don't have any Qs or Zs you, or- But neither do you. I think you're overthinking this, by the way. I think ConvertKit like, is great. But I, I think that- um, you can end up with a longer domain, mm-hmm. uh, 
a longer, you know, two word domain, but it feels and sounds very, very simple. What yes. Yes. And that like, that's the thing that I would have people take away. It's not about the length of the domain. It's about how it feels and sounds and how mm. um, spellable and pronounceable it is. Yes. So, anyway, I, yes, I'm a, I'm a nerd on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Another thing that I want to ask about with Paperbell is you have a long form, like blog post style mm-hmm. sales page, which um, you and I both have a little bit of a background in direct response copywriting mm-hmm. and, that, and that world. But most people, when you when you do a, a SaaS page, right, a SaaS sales page, um, you make it all fancy. You got to hire a designer. Yeah. You have to do the same. You have to look at whatever illustration style is in vogue right now for SaaS pages, and you have to copy it exactly. <laughs> make it look exactly the same. No variation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It has to be, you know, you're like, oh, what's Intercom doing now? Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, let's yeah. <laughs> let's do that. Uh, by the way, people called Intercom, Intercom.io forever. Until yeah. they, yeah. it took them a long time to grow out of that. Um, anyway, so I, I'm curious why the, uh, mm-hmm. the long form written page? Yeah, so it's, it, to be clear for anyone listening, it's our homepage. So it yep. is very, very unusual for a software company to go to the homepage and see um, long form text. So... Uh, there's a few reasons why I thought it would work for our market. We have split tested it and it, it did mm-hmm. win, not a, a massive split test. Um, but I think the reason it works for our market. So one, our market sees a lot of long form sales pages um, and ours is nice looking with a nice design. But I know there are some markets, programmers, who if they see a long, anything that looks remotely like a long form sales page, they're like, it's a scam. I'm leaving now. <laughs> it's a scam. You know, just like some audiences, like it, they have a bad connotation with it. Our audience does not. Our audience is used to buying online courses, you know, lots or coaching often uses kind of the long form sales yep. page. They're used to it. So it's kind of how they're used to buying things. Um, another big reason why it makes sense to us is because Paperbell is a new category. So this is something that is very, very different from Meet Edgar. So when we launched Meet Edgar, we were not the first social media scheduling tool. We did not think of that idea. Right. You know, Hootsuite and Buffer both already existed. We had kind of a new spin on it, but it was an established category. And in retrospect, that was the best thing about marketing a business like that. Obviously, ConvertKit's the same. Mm-hmm. When people choose Meet Edgar or ConvertKit, what they do is they look for an email marketing tool. They look for a social media marketing tool. They read a bunch of blog posts with lists of all the top 10, and then they choose one of them. You know, So if you're in an established... And this is, again, why it's great to have competition. People are so scared to have competition. If you're in an established category and you can make it to those lists, a certain percentage of people are going to choose you. Like That's just kind of how it is. That's kind of how marketing those businesses is at the end of the day. People go to the category consciously. They have to make a choice out of the category. Give them a reason to choose you. Paperbell is very different. So we are creating a new category. Like most coaches are not actively looking for a tool to manage their scheduling and payments and client admin in one place. It's a new (laughs) idea. So we, if we just present them with like, Here's the software features. It's like, well, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for those software features. It's something that often isn't going to connect with them right off the bat. But if we're telling the story, and for Paperbell, a lot of the story is your love is of doing the work with your clients. You do not care about 
the business admin. You wish the business admin didn't exist. You absolutely hate asking for money. You hate sending reminder emails. You hate sending a contract and then they didn't sign it and you have to remind them again before you can actually work together. You hate all of that stuff. You want to focus on the coaching. So we have to sort of back into things where we're like, we know, we know what's up with you. You want to coach. You don't want to do this business admin stuff. Good news. We have a solution for you. We have software that, that does this. I think it makes a lot of sense for our market that we would really need to tell the story, which I think the best way to really connect like that is through a wall of text because you right. can really have a conversation with someone. It would be hard to do with just kind of a few graphics with one little line of text underneath. Yeah. When, and I've definitely tried it for like you and I have both sold courses with long form sales pages. Mm -hmm. It works really well. Yeah. Um, like that great copywriting, drawing people in. And it's the opposite of the approach that probably most software companies take where they're like, mm -hmm. here's a beautiful design. What text should we put in it? What do you want yeah. to swap out this more <laughs> simple? Or maybe they, they worked on like the, the main headline, right? Mm -hmm. But then everything else is kind of written to fill in the design rather than, than the design around the text. Something you have uh, a date on the homepage of April 5th, 2022, <laughs> which happens to be uh, today's date. What? I don't think what? that's an accident. <laughs> Did you notice in the, like, because it feels like it's this, this article that you just published, mm. right? Uh, is that something that you split tested or you just put it in there and tried it? And I haven't split tested the date, but it's funny for me. It's actually, it's less about like that looking like an, it was just published for me. It's more... The inspiration is from those like old school direct response letters, you know, mm -hmm. if you and actually, you know what, it doesn't say this anymore. The headline did used to be like, dear coach was the headline. So now we have a different headline and it doesn't start with dear someone, but it used to start with dear coach. It actually l was written as a letter. So I'm like, mm -hmm. well, if you have a letter, you have a date on the top of the letter. So, yeah, for me, it's not so much about like. And just to be clear, that date is updated automatically, just so everyone knows. <laughs> it will always be today. The system person is not going in there and They're being like, okay, is it the sixth? Okay, cool. <laughs> and changing it. So yeah, for me, I just wanted to create a feel like I wrote you a letter, you know? And I think what we often can forget when we're doing online marketing is the person reading that letter is reading it today. You know, like I right. wrote it a few months ago. I've edited it, edited it a bunch of times. I've split tested it. To me, it feels like this other thing. But to them, it is a letter that they are reading today, you know. Um, and I think having today's date is just a little thing that sort of catches. It just makes your brain be like, oh, that's that's today. It's just a, sort of a yeah. tiny, tiny little thing that catches your attention. Yeah, I think that people get really hung up on sales pages, right? Because you have to be a designer. You for mm -hmm. sure have to be a copywriter. Like it's all these skills that you have to have to make mm -hmm. a sales page. It's like, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. And the approach that you've taken, which you're a very good copywriter, so that helps. But the approach that you've taken is just like, hey, you know, like dear customer, dear potential customer, mm -hmm. here's why we made this. Here's what you should, yeah. here's why you should buy it. And if you write that out, maybe later you'll hire a copywriter to punch it up. You'll hire a right. designer to do other things with it. But you can start from that. And anyone who can articulate a business idea enough that they're like, I want to spend the next five years of my life building this, like has yeah. the ability to articulate, you know, why they're building it, why you should buy it. And the letter is a great tool for that. And it like lets you get past all the things that we get hung up on, right? Of the, the design and everything else. 
Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, the best copywriting advice is always, always, always write it how you say it out loud. So if mm-hmm. you read it out loud and it doesn't sound like something that you would actually say, just go back. And that is going to turn out probably way more casual than what you first wrote. I do this all the time with email. You know, I do all the copywriting for Paperbell. I do it all the time with emails because I often, a lot of our emails for Paperbell are plain text emails just signed for me. And it is, even though I'm very experienced, my initial mode when I'm writing an email is a sort of promotional copywriting email, which has its place. It's not like you never send those. But so I will imagine a real, I'm like, okay, if I literally wanted to tell Nathan about a new feature, if I'm like, I know yeah. that my real friend Nathan uses Paperbell, I know he would want to know about this new feature that I released. What would I write in that real email to him? That is always going to be excellent copywriting, but it can be hard to make yourself do. And it, the end result is like, you're going to be like, can I really send that? Because what I would really say to him is, you know, sometimes it's like, Oh, release something new. No, you wanted it in a new calendar. Check out the link here. No signature, right? That might be the real email that you right. would send your friend. That would work so well as <laughs> a product announcement email. Like I promise you, because it has that real, it has that real feeling of someone sending you an email, and you're like, oh, I do want to check this out. I'm going to click the link. Yeah, that advice is probably the best for writing. Of like writing to a single person. I've actually written an entire book once to a single person, mm. and it really helped. My my mm-hmm. book, uh, designing web applications. Uh, was written to uh, my brother-in-law who was getting mm-hmm. into designing web applications at the time. And so I just kept thinking about, okay, what would Philip want to know about this topic? And I'd be like, dear Philip. And I, yeah. you know, her like, hey, Philip. And I would mm-hmm. like write an entire chapter and then I would go back and remove the, hey, Philip, because it's just weird in a book. <laughs> but it, it's such a useful tool because it takes you from like, what would the broad it masses on the internet or all yeah. the potential readers want to yeah. know? And it just takes you into like, right, here you go. And a real person, not a persona. I think often people, you know, yes. you make your little customer persona and you're like, oh, it's singing Sally. She loves to sing. It's like, don't write, don't write to <laughs> singing Sally, like write to a real customer, right? You emailed with them the other day. They had a question for you. Write to right. that real person. Yeah. And then if you're like, I don't know who that real person is, like, well, you need to have a lot more calls and do a lot more customer research because. <laughs> right. If you don't know one real human who yeah. might be like, because they don't even have to have bought yet. Right. It's just like a real human that may be interested in purchasing is, is all we're talking about here. Yeah, for sure. Um, OK, you have a headline. So Paperbell is two years old now? Yeah. Is that right? OK. Almost two years old. Almost two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you have. On here, you know, the headline for the page is the little tool that paid out over $2 million to coaches last year. Yeah. Um, first, that's phenomenal. Like in, yeah. in year, I don't know, year half to year one and a half, basically. Is that what that is? You, like, Yeah. Well, because, yeah, that was in the 2021 calendar year. And how that headline happened is, um, so I work with my husband, Chris, is our developer who built Paperbell. So we process, we're not the payment processor. We connect yeah. with your Stripe account and process payments. But he was like, you know, doing something and he happened to come across the total volume that we'd processed in 2021. And he goes, did you, did you know that we processed like 2 million? I was like, what? Like, I was shocked. I had no idea because we don't really like we don't really see it. We're not it just it's it's kind of on the customer's radar. Like it's not really right. on our 
dashboard. It's like on their dashboard. So I was floored. I had no idea it was that much money. And I'm like, that is too good not to use in our marketing. Like we have to use that in our marketing somewhere. I'm like, that's so good. That's the headline of our homepage. That's so good. Yeah. I mean, that's phenomenal traction, like uh, early in the product. And, and that's really exciting. One thing that I have to say that mm-hmm. I, I've told you over text before is that you need to switch to being the payment processor. I know it's a bunch of work and all of that, right? But moving from, <laughs> yeah. from Stripe Connect to Stripe Custom Connect. Now, if it makes you feel better, any better, we talked to, we talked about Kajabi earlier. Uh-huh. They are at a billion dollar run rate on payments. They're not the payment processor. Or maybe now they are, but like a year ago when I was talking to the team, I'm like, yeah. what are you doing? This is a huge revenue stream. Like, uh, and I mean, that's part of why we built out Converted Commerce, right? Is that yeah. we are the payment processor. Uh, that's a revenue stream for us. Listen, nobody's using that thing. You already told me. Yeah. It's still going to make like... <laughs> Don't try to hype it up now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, now I'm trying to think it probably makes us $25,000 a month in payment yeah, processing fees. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and we're <laughs> just getting started. And so, the, cause the other thing that's going to happen, right. Is the sooner you make that switch, then people will be building on their paper bell accounts. Mm-hmm. Right. And then all future payments will go from that. Whereas yeah. that whole base that is, you know, on their Stripe accounts, um, is going to, like those customers will always be on their Stripe accounts. They're not going to migrate uh, to this other system most likely without manual work. This is a boring topic for listeners. So I'm just going to ask you one question about it, I think. <laughs> so do you guys have to limit the types of businesses that are allowed to use commerce? Um, we have to limit the countries. Uh, so we're mm-hmm. only in about 40 countries. Like HoneyBook, you cannot be a travel agent and use HoneyBook because they're the payment processor. Oh, we haven't noticed any restrictions like that. Um, okay. Show your lawyer this video. <laughs> Ask them about travel agents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's weird that travel agents is the one, you know. I know. I have no idea why. Not them specifically. They're, I mean, so you are taking on, you know, more more risk. There's potential mm-hmm. fraud. There, there's other things. Right, uh, right. But just on the, on the long-term scale of, of the business, yeah. it's something that you should definitely start where you did. And then I'm going to be that person who's like, okay, okay. but then it's going to be like, <laughs> go over to Chris and be like, all right, Chris, we need to rewrite this, <laughs> just this portion of it. Just so, this part. It'll, it'll be good. Cause you, you would have made, you know, 50 grand last year on that two million. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're still small. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. So anyway, a lot of that would have gotten then paid on to visa, but still. <laughs> okay. Where are you going from here? What, uh, as you scale Paperbell, what, uh, what's the plan going forward? I mean, the plan is to stay really focused and be that that best tool. Um, <laughs> I love being in an industry vertical. So I was kind of talking before about what was easy about Meet Edgar Marketing was they're already looking for a social media scheduling tool. What was hard about Meet Edgar Marketing is we didn't have a specific niche beyond kind of freelancer, solopreneur, very small business. So we couldn't find a list of our customers. It had to be people who are looking, you know, for social media scheduling. Paperbell is the opposite. Very few people are looking for us, but uh, you know, we're a sponsor with the International Coaching Federation. And right. we actually get a ton of leads from that sponsorship, which I was actually really surprised by because I've tried a lot of this stuff over the years. Usually you don't really get any clicks from it. Like when ICF publishes our lead magnet link in their newsletter, 
we get like hundreds of new leads, mm-hmm. which I was like, wait, what is that? <laughs> how is that? How, is that how? Like I actually paid for something and it actually worked. Um, but it's a really targeted audience. And, you know, we're giving them a really targeted offer. So the plan for Paperbell, you know, maybe someday in the future will expand to other industry verticals. I think if we do expand, it will be industry vertical as opposed to expanding the tool. I think it'll be, you know, a similar version of the tool for other, basically, because the tool works for a service professional who sells one-on-one sessions, which is a lot of different people. You know, we're not designed for you if you like let the clock run and then you bill your hours. We're not designed for you if you're sending deliverables to your clients. But if what you sell is that one-on-one session, it's an excellent tool. And, you know, coaches and consultants are not the only profession that have that model. But yeah, what sounds really exciting to me is to keep working towards that goal of having the absolute best tool for coaches. Um, It's a really quickly growing industry, both the coaching industry and the coaching software industry. Like a lot of tools like us are launching all the time, um, which I genuinely think is great because my vision is for coaches to know that they need a paper bell. I would prefer that they use paper bell, but I see a future in which coaches it's just obvious, like, okay, you need a paper bell. Hopefully they'll even call it that, even if they use another one. <laughs> yes. They'll be like, oh, well, I use this crappy cheap paper bell, but I use a paper bell. Um, you know, that it's just an obvious choice. If you have a coaching business, you need a tool like this. Um, and, you know, I'm very genuinely excited about coaching and broad strokes. I think coaching mm-hmm. is an amazing thing. It just, you know, Probably this audience doesn't have a lot of coaching skeptics, you know, but there are a lot of coaching skeptics yeah. out there. And I'm always like, you're, you're just hiring someone to support you get better in some area. Like, what, how can you be mad about that? I just don't get how people are like, oh, coaching is a sham. I'm like, how could someone just <laughs> chats to you and like checks in with you about getting better about something? I just don't get how it's a scam. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think coaching in general makes the world a better place. And I am, I'm excited about kind of professionalizing the industry, helping the industry to get better and grow. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, as anyone who listens knows, I'm a huge fan of coaching because I, hire coaches and all that. And yes, there are, there are bad coaches out there, just like there are bad programmers out there, right? Like whatever industry, there are people who are not effective at their job right? (laughs) or who create more problems than they solve. Um, But, but yeah, that's awesome to see. I'm going to be really curious uh, in a couple of years, as you write more about like the model of building the business of Mm -hmm. the independent, you know, independent contractors and uh, you know, you and Chris is the full-time people working on it. I just think we need more examples, like, there's so many things where people are like, this is the best practice. This is the way it must be done. This is the way mm. it's always done. And I'm like, you just mean that you don't have a good example. Like you haven't, you've never read a good mm. example of it being done a different way, which might be for good reason or it might not. And so I, yeah. I really like it when people show other paths. So thanks for doing that and keep it up. Yeah, thanks. Uh, where should people go to follow you and uh, read the articles that you've written and then sign up for Paperbell? Yeah. So Paperbell, as we mentioned, is paperbell.com or Paperbell on social media. Um, And you can check out my website at lauraroder.com where I blog 
Once every quarter or so, I would say. <laughs> when you have something really substantial to say. <laughs> yes. When I, when I have something to say, I write a blog post. So the ones on there are, are pretty good. Yep. <laughs> I love it. Laura, it's great to catch up. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you.